There's also an approach which Russia very much pioneered, and actually dating back to when it was the Soviet Union back in the 1920s, which is um, using disinformation not to make you like me, but rather to spread division, dissension, distrust in your target audience. Welcome to the Hopkins Podcast on Foreign Affairs, the entirely student-run podcast at Johns Hopkins University. I'm your host, Julia, and I'm very excited to introduce two new co-hosts to the podcast. My name is Chris Park. I'm a sophomore majoring in international studies. I'm also an editor of the Johns Hopkins newsletter. Hi, I'm Lauren Zhao, and I'm a freshman at Hopkins studying international studies and political science. The emergence of social media in recent years has profoundly improved communication and information sharing around the globe. However, social media has also become a powerful tool in conflicts and warfare. Today, the same platforms used to organize protests are also used by terrorist groups and belligerent nations to spur attacks and sway elections. In this episode, we will discuss the tactics used to weaponize social media, as well as what we can do to protect against these risks while balancing internet freedom. Joining us today to discuss the weaponization of social media is Dr. Peter Singer. Dr. Singer is a strategist at New America, a professor of practice at Arizona State University, and a principal at Useful Fiction LLC. He has written many books, such as Like War, The Weaponization of Social Media, which is discussed in the podcast, as well as Ghost Fleet, Burn-In, and Corporate Warriors. Dr. Singer is described in the Wall Street Journal as the premier futurist in the national security environment and has been named by the Smithsonian as one of the nation's 100 leading innovators. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Hopkins Podcast on Foreign Affairs. Thank you so much for joining us today, Dr. Singer. Um, I wanted to start by asking, what do we define as social media and how has this definition changed over the past century? Well, first, thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. Um, Social media is essentially what we're talking about is a technology that brings together two different kinds of uh, historic communication revolutions. So if you think about the game-changing technologies when it came to how we humans communicate, uh, they either allowed um, an improved one-on-one conversation. Uh, So you think of uh, the telegraph or the telephone. Um, Or they allowed a one-to-many kind of conversation. So you think of um, the printing press or television broadcasting out or um, even uh, the internet. Uh, The early form of the internet became that. What social media has done in the true revolution here is that it is given to anyone the ability to simultaneously have both a one-on-one communication, but also broadcast it out to everyone in the world. And on top of that is um, it's not it, it's not directly social media, but it's part of this larger revolution is um, along with it, the platforms that we're using for it uh, allow not just this um, distribution like never before, but also they allow collection like never before. So uh, whether you're talking about the first generation of uh, the internet, you know, ARPANET, 
the computers that were used for that, or the second generation, um, the computer that a young Mark Zuckerberg uses to write the original software for what would become, it's originally called FaceMash, but then the Facebook and then Facebook. Those computers lacked sensors. They lacked the ability to gather information about the world beyond that computer. Well, now it's not just that you have Facebook or Instagram or whatever. It's the fact that you have it on a phone that isn't just mean that you're mobile, but that phone has over 25 different sensors on it. So you have camera collecting information about the visible world beyond that computer. You've got geolocation. Where in the world is um, that user of the computer? And so that combination is just so incredibly powerful because what you have is a scale of information, both collection and distribution, like never before in human history. So in your book, Like War, The Weaponization of Social Media, Dr. Singer, you discuss many types of social media. Is there a difference in how different types of platforms are used to spread information or as weapons? And which specific uh, platforms or, and apps have had the greatest influence? The book lays out a series of um, rules of what uh, and my co-author Emerson Brooking and I uh, called like war. And the idea behind this is that I think around um, 15 years back, we began to um, wrestle more deeply with the challenge of a cybersecurity and cyber war the hacking of networks. And when I say wrestle more deeply, I mean, we, over the last 15 years, had everything from the creation of new government and military organizations like um, Cyber Command to uh, we had um, businesses alter. Uh, they, they create um, chief information security officers to how you and I uh, think about security of our accounts. And the idea is that um, if you have cyber war, the hacking of networks, what we're seeing now is almost its twin, uh, what we call like war, the hacking of people on social networks by driving ideas viral through a mix of likes, shares, and sometimes lies. And the that activity, that like war, it's not specific to any one um, platform. It plays out on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram. Um, it sometimes even plays out on things like, you know, Yelp, LinkedIn, you name it. Um, it's global. Uh, so, you know, if, uh, in Russia, it's VK, um, uh, China, very different platforms. So it, it's more about the rules that play out than the specific platforms themselves. Uh, and to the second part of your question, are there any one that are kind of more or less um, influential? Um, it really does depend on everything from the popularity of that platform at the time to the target audience that you're trying to hit uh, to more recently the rules that those platforms have into place. So, you know, as an example, um, uh, Facebook, um, you know, someone who's younger is like, well, you know, Facebook, that's what my grandparents are on. Uh true. Um, oh, by the way, the grandparents are seven times more likely to share misinformation online than in the other generation. So that matters for certain arcs, for example, elections, but um, Instagram, TikTok uh, may play out in a different way. But it's not just about the user base. It's also about the policies that they have. So for example, um, 
a couple, you know, a year back, uh, Twitter was a little bit more open ground than it has been more recently. They put in a series of measures that um, have created what we might think of as more friction for threat actors in this space, makes their job of spreading mis and disinformation a little bit tougher. Doesn't solve it, but has made it tougher. And so actually what we're seeing threat actors, the bad guys do, is um, forum shop. Basically, they identify which platforms are easier to spread something viral in with the idea that it then will cross over into other platforms. So if you can drive something viral in um, Instagram, it's going to somewhat, I would say, I wouldn't want to use the word naturally, but it's more than that. It'll pop up, it'll go viral in, in Twitter, even if it didn't originally, you know, if it wasn't allowed the front door there. So Dr. Singer, you just laid out a lot of interesting examples, forum shopping and you know, hacking people on social media. Is this what you mean by like how social media can be weaponized? And also I was wondering if you could specifically talk about how social media has been used as a tool or a weapon in election interference recently. Great question. And yeah, so what we see is that a um, packet of information uh, can be used not just to inform, it's the word, but it can be also be used akin to a weapon. Uh, it can be used to uh, target and create effect. And that targeting and creating effect um, plays out in realms that range from politics to war to terrorism um, to marketing. And um, here's where the, the parallels, again, with cybersecurity are very interesting. So in cybersecurity, uh, we, you know, again, over the last 15 years, began to grow comfortable with the idea of um, digital weapons, that it didn't have to be physical in form, but it could be used to um, cause effect on the world, that you, uh, you would breach a network and it could um, lead to the... Just like someone robbing a bank, uh, you could rob the zeros and ones of a network. And in fact, it would be much more consequential than some of the traditional forms. Uh, so you know, if we, we do it by the numbers, the biggest bank robbery in history was um, not you know, someone walking into a bank. It was actually uh, when the North Koreans hacked the SWIFT system. It's the international um, banking transfer system. And they uh, stole uh, almost $100 million uh, they, it, because they got um, code slightly wrong. They were on their way to getting a billion dollars. You couldn't normally walk out of a building with a billion dollars, even $100 million, but they were able to do this through digital means. Same thing if you're trying to um, sabotage a system, uh, you can use digital means. Um, some of the listeners might have heard of something called Stuxnet. Uh, which was where the U.S. used um, a digital weapon to sabotage Iranian nuclear research. So we've grown comfortable with that idea of weaponization of malware. Um, now what we're seeing in social media is the same thing, that you can, by driving something viral, have an effect on the real world. And that effect might be anything from um, the opening scene of our book is from the Battle of Mosul in Iraq. And um, we show how not only did the group ISIS arise in large part through its use of social media, 
it um, persuaded some 30,000 people from over 90 countries to travel to Iraq and Syria to join this group made up of people that they didn't know. It was the exact opposite of how Al-Qaeda recruited and built itself. But it wasn't just that. It In that battle of Mosul, by driving information viral, it helped lead to the collapse of the Iraqi army that it was fighting against. So it, it actually had a smaller fighting force that went into battle, but because it won the digital side of the war, it um, won that battle overall. Um, and so we've seen that physical effect, as you, as you asked, in everything from marketing campaigns, criminality, terrorism. Unfortunately, we're also feeling it now in the pandemic. Um, public health professionals talk about the what they call the infodemic, the spread of misinformation and deliberate disinformation that's made the job of fighting the pandemic so much more difficult. Um, and we've, of course, seen it in politics and not just in the U.S. election, but a study by an Australian think tank found over 30 different national elections have seen these deliberate disinformation campaigns shape them. And they shape everything from um, what is talked about in that election. Uh, and a really interesting thing about Like War is it's not just about hacking the social networks. If you can hack the social networks, you can also hack other forms of media. There was a study that um, professional journalists, so you know whether they're a newspaper reporter, uh, they book the guests for a local radio talk show, over 90% of them use social media to decide what story to cover, who to interview for the story, if it's still trending, whether to double down with a, another segment on that talk show, do another um, article about it. So the point is, you can if you can hack social media, you can also hack the other media. So that shapes what's going on in terms of what people talk and think about in the election. It can shape whether people um, turn out to a protest or not. One of the, the sad examples from 2016 was um, the Russians actually uh, motivated both sides of a protest in Florida to show up. Um, they manipulated both sides to come to this uh, protest. Um, this was in 2016. It can also, of course, affect people's votes, um, w what they think about the world, um, what they think about the candidates, uh, and that then leads them and helps shape their vote. So it can be incredibly powerful and in some cases more powerful than even the lived experiences of people. And when it comes to election interference, I guess if some of our listeners might be wondering, what do countries have to gain specifically from interfering in another country's elections? Oh, man. Um, uh, so we think of propaganda often as make you like me. So, you know, the, the story from the Cold War of um, the U.S., you know, uh, everything from the world loves our rock and roll, our blue jeans, our fast food. And that's, you know, becomes part of this narrative of winning the Cold War. But um, that's actually only one part of the story and maybe not the most accurate part of the story in that um, there's also an approach which Russia very much pioneered, and actually dating back to 
when it was the Soviet Union back in the 1920s, which is um, using disinformation not to make you like me, but rather to spread division, dissension, distrust in your target audience and using that as a way to um, everything from weaken them overall to achieve very specific tactical goals. And um, that's the type of activity that I referenced those 30 plus elections that we've seen out there that um, we've, we've seen happen. And part of the, the um, why of this is also that it's incredibly cheap. So for example, Russia's campaign to target the 2016 election which you know had this long-running legacy effect, and you know, continue, whatever side you come down politically, it's obviously had this sort of poisonous, pernicious effect on our politics um, for the long term. That operation cost them roughly the report I saw was twelve million dollars. That's like not even a wing of a single F thirty-five fighter jet. And yet you can achieve this kind of strategic effect on your target audience. Um, and so that's the why of it. Now, there are also, don't just think about this in sort of geopolitical. It can also be used, um, these tactics were used by political campaigns to achieve their wins. Um, Donald Trump himself, whether you like him or dislike him, he says, um, and I believe the almost exact quote is that I would not be president if not for social media. Don't, don't hold me this quote because we're on podcast right now. But basically, he credits social media for how he became president. Like everything, it's a little bit more complex story, but he would not be president without social media. Um, in turn, we don't just see this in sort of overall national political campaigns. It can even happen at the at the local or state level. There was a um, report, uh, for instance, about a county commission election that was targeted by these activities, uh, essentially to um, the county commission election was going to determine the award of a real estate deal in that county. And so uh, one of the players hired a private company to run one of these campaigns to influence the outcome of that election uh, because it was you know, worth it to them in terms of uh, paying a couple hundred thousand dollars to try and shape a, a contract worth millions. There's an important takeaway uh, in all of this is that these activities, this what we call like war, the, the weaponization of social media, it's like every other tool or technology. It can be used for both good and evil. So we've seen these approaches used for ISIS propaganda, but the very same approach was used for ice bucket challenge, right? Uh, in our book, we show how ISIS's top recruiter was copycatting Taylor Swift. And again, you can, you know, you have to decide whether you consider Taylor Swift for the forces of good or evil. But the point is, um, it's, it's agnostic to the, the, the sort of the, the, the approach can be used for both ways. It's just one of the, the, the new ways that the world works. And the same thing, um, you know, mentioned Trump utilizes these, but so now does every other political campaign and candidate out there. Russia uses them, 
so does every other major state out there in both good and bad. And the same thing, businesses, marketing, you name it, to, um, you know, uh, every teenager is using these tactics. And then when it comes to election interference, I guess we talked about countries and, you know, what they have to gain from interfering in election. But I'm also wondering with private individuals or entities or just non-countries in general, do they also interfere in elections? And are their motivations dissimilar to those of countries? Everybody is um, utilizing the online world as a type of battlefield to achieve their goals. So yes, you have um, nations operating this, individual leaders, political campaigns, corporations, you name it. What is fascinating is that they can be wildly different, and yet they're utilizing the very same approaches, the very same tactics. And, oh, by the way, that's the same thing that happened in traditional cybersecurity. You know, in traditional cybersecurity, you can have a um, member of Cyber Command, a Russian bank robber, and a teenage activist all using the same tools for very different goals when they're hacking a network. It's the same thing as I mentioned in this space. Um, you know, ISIS's top recruiter and Taylor Swift are a, 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 a another wild, weird, but you know, this is the world we're in example is um, Lady Gaga fans consciously talked about copycatting Russian military intelligence approaches in this space but for them, it was to sabotage a rival to Lady Gaga, which was the Sony um, movie Venom, which uh, dared to come out the same weekend as uh, Lady Gaga's movie A Star is Born. So her fans wanted to do something about it. They'd seen all the news reports about the Russian activities targeting an election and said, hold it, we could do that too. And they copycatted in terms of everything from uh, creating false front accounts to um, what you call a astroturf movement, which is a, a simulation of a grassroots movement, but it has a real effect like, like astroturf. They did the very same thing online in an attempt to um, sync the, uh, the, the reviews and the likelihood of people going to see this movie and, uh, instead of Lady Gaga's new movie. Um, but guess what? AstroTurf movements, you know, used in movie marketing or sabotage, used in political campaigns, used in um, extremism, uh, also unfortunately was used uh, in this pandemic. Um, a number of the, uh, the, the open movement that led to um, too many of the U.S. states opening up early contrary to the Trump administration's own guidelines on when states were supposed to open up, um, were pushed by a planned uh, movement that was a, it was an astroturf movement. It didn't have large numbers of people, but rather they created viral moments and then had over 50 preset hashtags set and ready to go. So it, it, spins out online rapidly and has the feel as if there's this large grassroots movement, even when there was not at the time, but then it begins to have a real political effect and builds out real following. And it's an unfortunate part of the story of um, why 
we've had uh, such a hard time dealing with the pandemic here is that, as I referenced before, the infodemic that um, helped lead to a lot of um, activities and even political decisions that were contrary to the known best uh, health practices. So you previously talked about Mosul and how social media amplifies fear. And in your book, you talked about how social media can affect the course of protests, such as in the Arab Spring protests. In general, what are the patterns or methods in which social media is used to influence these protests? So we've, and here again, it, it can be a force for good or a force uh, for evil. Uh, and we can think about the why, you know, when we're talking about protests, you know, you have everything from uh, Arab Spring to uh, more recently the ones that have played out in the U.S., um, George Floyd and Black Lives Matter. And then we can think of, you know, more pernicious uh, protests that, um, you know, extremists coming together or, you um, yeah, I'm I'm deeply concerned about what's looming in terms of um, anti-vaxxers. Uh, that we've finally achieved this um, breakthrough with vaccines, and yet uh, part of what is going to sabotage them, uh, or, or what are going to be attempts to sabotage them, are uh, movements to to claim falsehoods about them that will have both uh, an online viral element to them, but also the the real world physical protest side. So again, when you say protest. Uh, you can think about both the positives and negatives. Um, social media influences everything from people's, uh, the originating cause that sparks the protest, uh, whether it was um, the Arab Spring, which uh, originates from a, a viral moment of um, a, a young man uh, who lit himself on fire in frustration at uh, corruption. And then um, anger on that spreads uh, online um, to the George Floyd uh, killing. That you have obviously a long history of police abuse. It was the fact that this was um, filmed and uh, goes viral online. Um, and then it builds as I. Uh, not just the protests, but then violence used against protesters. And then people see that and that, that builds. So it might be the spark of it. Um, the online world is also used for the networking of how you um, not just motivate, but how you organize. Uh, so think about um, the, the mom's march in Washington, the mom's march and it was in Washington, DC, but everywhere that was a phenomena that was, you know, essentially, organized online um again we can think of bad versions of that um it's not a protest but it, it, it led about there have been um mass killings uh in um places like uh, myanmar or um india where the same both motivation and organization happen online um and the point is that we we obviously exist in, in a real world, but what happens in the online world uh, can be, in some cases, equally or even more important. One of the, the interesting things that we also see this in um, political protests in the U.S. is um, the view of that protest and um, your perception of it, if you were not there, is shaped by war 
what information bubble you are in in the online world. So I use that example of um, the Moms March. Um, you know, I, my wife, my my mother-in-law, who was a librarian, my sister, all went to it. Um, and you know, is it by giving that example of a mother-in-law who's a librarian, and yet, and I give that example because much of the misinformation that was pushed about it um, by certain figures claimed that it was a riot and that there was violence. And so there is a significant percentage of the American public that thinks that, for example, the Moms March involved a riot or involved violence. Um, a similar uh, around the, the overall protests this um, summer related to uh, George Floyd and Black Lives Matter, there was a study done of um, the actual amount of violence at them and basically found, um, again, please don't hold me to the exact number, but it was over 99% of the protests that popped up in the United States did not involve violence. And yet there's a significant part of the, the body politic because of the way mis and disinformation spread online believed that it was this you know mass violent movement. Um, and so that's the power of uh, social media is that not only can it you know spark the protest, organize the protest, but it can also shape what is the story that comes out of that protest and how does it hit in our politics. Dr. Singer, you've described a lot of risks with social media, with the power of social media. Given these risks, you've also mentioned that there are some positives. Can you describe some of the benefits of the rapid spread of information that we can get through social media? So I think those those examples that I've given of um, protest movements that have been for the good, um, awareness of uh, topics and harms that um, would not have been surfaced or spread without social media. Think about pretty much every movement now has a hashtag on a hashtag me too. Uh, whatever you movement you care about and think is for the good, it now is, again, largely being motivated, organized. Its effect is coming from the online world. Go back to that example that I gave of um, Ice Bucket Challenge. That was a deliberate, well-designed campaign that leveraged these these rules of you know what we call like war, where um, it it sort of hooked into um, the network. Uh, it also pulled off of in, in when we did our research, we looked at when something went viral, whether it was a joke or a piece of deliberate disinformation, or something like um, Ice Bucket Challenge, they kept consistently having the same attributes. There were, uh, again, these kind of rules of when something went viral, what attributes were needed to go viral. And, you know, I, Ice Bucket Challenge brought a massive amount of attention to, uh, uh, it brought attention to something that was needed. It, it helped with fundraising. Um, so, those are the positives. I mean, again, I think that what is disturbing to us, you know, I, I'm, as I've described it, I'm saying, you know, look, there's a good and there's a bad side to it. I think what is disturbing to us is a couple of things. One, um, it feels like the force 
forces of um, evil are using a platform that we were originally told would only be for the good. So it's part of kind of the original misdirect of this. Uh, you know, there was the idea that um, the internet would bring us all together. Uh, you go back to the period of the Arab Spring, um, you're seeing articles written in the New York Times talking about the, the liberating power of the internet and that, you know, the, the age of authoritarianism is done for because of the internet. And that was, that was a misdirect. That was wrong. And that, that happens with every new technology. I mean, you know, going back to those historic examples I gave you, you know, uh, people back when the telegraph comes along, they, they write about how the telegraph is going to lead to peace in the entire world. And then within a short period of time later, the telegraph is being used by the military. Uh, it's the same phenomena here. The internet, of course, has had both good and bad effects to it. But I think so the first is that misdirect. The second is that in certain situations, the forces of evil um, have proved to be a little bit more adept at it. They have understand the rules better they've been more likely to break the old rules and norms. And uh, that has given it this feel that um, it's only for the bad. Um, and so how do, we, how do we handle that? What do we do about it? The first is you know, not to trick ourselves into thinking that it's only for the good um, and to not listen to those that might tell us, that might have very biased reasons for telling us why it's only for the good. Um, you know, uh, a for-profit company has certain motivations to tell you that. There was a, an old Facebook um, uh, tagline uh, uh, they used to push out um, that was Facebook, the more you connect, the better it gets. The more you connect, the better it gets. Well, now in a world of disinformation that and, you know, mass surveillance, the more you connect, the better it gets. That actually sounds very Orwellian. Um, so we don't one, be very realistic about it. And then two, develop everything from government policy to change corporate action to your own personal awareness and behavior to better navigate this world, to steer it towards more positive ends. And so, you know, if authoritarian governments are doing well at this, in part, it's because the large democracies like the U.S. have not developed good strategies for it. Um, if it's not being well managed by the businesses, that's because that's the way the marketplace has been steered so far. And also because the businesses themselves, frankly, have a, um, uh, an, I would say an outdated sense of their own roles and responsibilities and who they are right now. They are no longer just tech companies. They are media companies and they're some of them, they are the most powerful media companies in all of human history at least to a very different set of responsibilities. But then us, why are we being um, manipulated too frequently in this space by forces of that? Why are our parents and grandparents? Because we're not well-trained and equipped in how to use it. Um, so you know, if you grew up in uh, other democracies, in Estonia, for example, from early on, you're taught digital literacy skills. You're taught how to learn to discern between what's real, what's false, what's harmful, what's not online, we don't have that baked into our system right now. Uh, and so we're behind. Uh, and so there's this, there's this sad irony that the nation that invented the internet is um, the one that other nations now point to as saying, you know, don't let what happened to the Americans happen to us. 
So, so far we've discussed the impact of social media. As you said, it can be a tool for good, like the ALS, ALS Ice Bucket Challenge. But at the same time, a lot of evil originates from social media, from disinformation to election meddling. So in your view overall, is social media ultimately a threat to, to democracy? I don't know if I would go that far. It's most definitely been, as I referenced, a weapon that's been used by authoritarian regimes to target democracies. It's also been used by um, dangerous actors within our democracies to target the democracy, the health of the democracy itself. Um, and uh, that leads me deeply worried. Um, and, you know, one of the, the big changes, we, we earlier spoke about the 2016 election. One of the big changes between 2016 and 2020 is that um, the 2016 election was very much shaped by foreign government activity, the, the um, hacks of email networks, and then the distribution of information. And uh, that that is, again, without debate. Uh, in 2020, it, it's like the, um, uh, the trope from the horror movies, the killer is inside the house. It was not foreign government disinformation, foreign government hacking that, that was a big player in the election. But there was a mass scale of mis and disinformation um, inside the 2020 election swirling around in, in great amounts. Um, and what was interesting about it, I, I, I did this study that um, looked at not just mis misinformation overall, but by states. And what was interesting is when you break it down by who is interacting the most with misinformation online, it was not on a per state basis by the most populous states. So, you know, oh, New York and California have the most people. So naturally, they should have the most people interacting with misinformation. No, the top three states for interaction with misinformation were Pennsylvania, Michigan, and Florida swing states showing, you know, basically there was active campaigns targeting them, yielding a higher level of interaction. Um, one of the more little interesting things to unpack from it that may answer some of the mysteries of what went on in the 2020 election. Those were the top three overall. When you break it down by per capita interaction, Florida had less interaction overall than Pennsylvania. But on a on a per basically, per, I'm sorry. I'm, I'm let me make sure I'm expressing this in the correct way because we're talking about data here. Florida had roughly twice the level of per capita interaction with um, misinformation on certain key topics than people in Pennsylvania did. So Florida was like this epicenter for it. Um, there was a lot of really interesting things going on in the data. So you see it as a weapon used against democracies, used within democracies. That is an overall challenge. A larger question, though, for democracy itself, and now we're going to get really political philosophy with you, is um, technology shapes our larger political philosophies that then shapes our forms of government. So the printing press helped lead to the Enlightenment. And the Enlightenment helped lead to democracy in terms of the way we we utilize it in the U.S. No, you know, the founding fathers were were children 
of the Enlightenment. And the Enlightenment is drawn from this, this idea that there are certain truths out there, that the truth does not come from a king or a pope, that there are truths and that there is a marketplace of ideas and that the best idea will win out. The question now is, does social media change that? Can you have um, a marketplace of ideas uh, when we're all stuck in these information bubbles and where these even more so the bubbles, the information in it can be manipulated? Can you have a healthy democracy where um, you have people claiming that that's your truth? Um, that's my truth. Uh, what was the, um, Kellyanne Conway, uh, statement on, um, truth, the, um, alternative facts, right? Can, can you, can you have a healthy democracy if you can have your facts and I can have my facts and we cling to them and truly believe it? Um, frankly, can you have a healthy body politic in terms of public health right now? Right. Can you, can you have that if, um, a significant percentage doesn't, listen to science in large part because they're shaped by misinformation online. Um, that I worry about is the sort of larger threat to democracy. Mm-hmm. So we see how social media through misinformation, information bubbles, and all the things you just talked about shapes the marketplace of ideas. At the same time, you've also talked about how American policy lags in regulating social media and the internet at the same time. So how should the United States government go about imposing restrictions and regulations, if any? And at the same time, how are we, how should we balance maintaining freedom of the internet with protecting against the risks of weaponization of social media and the internet? So I think it's important there to distinguish between regulation, which you said, and government policy. So I would advocate on the governmental side um, what the United States needs is this very basic thing of um, politics, a strategy. We have a um, pretty good cybersecurity strategy right now. It was issued by the Trump administration about two years back. It's a pretty well-written document. And you know whether you're a Republican or most Democrats reading that document, that's a pretty good document. There's only one problem. It has actually zero sentences about everything that we've talked about when it comes to social media weaponization. The cybersecurity strategy is completely focused on protecting critical infrastructure from these classic hacking threats, not from what we've seen here. So the outcome is that we don't have an overall U.S. government strategy, and instead we've got this kind of um, disorganized cacophony across the U.S. government where you know you've got you had an election working group that brought together members of um, a couple of agencies like uh, Homeland Security, Cyber Command, FBI. You had a different entity, which was a Russia working group. But remember what we've been talking about here. It's not just about elections, not just about Russia. You see it related to extremism. You see it related to public health. Um, Oh, by the way, you've got agencies that aren't part of this that need to be part of it. So if 30 plus democracies have been targeted by these activities, not just the United States, but all of our allies, State Department has been utterly absent without leave on this topic, or digital literacy. The Department of Education 
and its leader, the secretary, the current secretary of education, have talked more about the threat of bears to kids at our schools than the threat of the Russian bear information warfare on our schools, our citizens, our democracy. I wish that was a joke, but that is the actual fact of the matter. And so without an overall strategy that brings it all together, apportions who's responsible and lays out activity and everything from your intelligence gathering to your information sharing to your training, uh, whether it's within the military, to you, how you're training kids, you name it. Without that holistic strategy, we're never going to be successful in it. And um, one of the things that America um, needs to do a far better job at, and it's not just in information warfare, but frankly, it's in everything from public health to digital government, you name it, is um, we need to stop thinking of ourselves as uh, the only ones who ever faced a problem or only ones who ever came up with a solution for it. We need to learn from what other nations are doing. So uh, as an example in this space, Estonia, they equally, they were among the first to be targeted by this kind of weaponization, and they've developed much better practices that better secure their nation and build up resilience against it. And notice how in no way, shape, or form, anything that I just said was... um, the government needs to do censorship. The government needs to do regulation. There are certain things that um, uh, we can have a back and forth on that might be needed. For example, I personally believe that we need to update our election laws, our election laws in terms of um, uh, how you regulate um, ads within them. Uh, They've really not been updated since um, the mid-2000s. And one of the interesting things is when those election laws were written, they were um, thinking about uh, advertising on the internet as the equivalent to advertising um, using uh, smoke uh, behind a plane, like the kind that you know flies over a beach or tugs a, tugs a flag, um, aerial advertising. Because the idea back in the mid-2000s was just like that plane flying over a, um, uh, a, a beach doing sky riding or tugging a flag – that if you advertise on the internet, only a certain number of people would see it and then it would dissipate. Well, we now know that advertising on the internet is literally the exact opposite of that, right? It, it lasts forever and it can go, it can spread. Well, we need to update our campaign um, advertising laws to reflect that. Um, there's other issues uh, that, you know, there's certainly a huge amount of debate about monopoly power or the responsibility of the companies. The hard reality of that is I don't think that part of the regulatory debate we're going to see much legal change because of the fact that the two sides of our government basically just disagree about it. And it's very difficult to see, at least within the next couple of years, legislation coming through uh, that kind of partisan logjam that alters it. So I'd rather spend my time focusing on How does the government overall develop a strategy to be much more effective that doesn't require um, massive regulatory change? Everything that I just said in no way, shape, or form, though, absolves the companies for thinking about how they alter their rules for what goes on in their marketplaces on their platforms. And they definitely have the power to do that. And in no way, shape, or form does that alter your First Amendment rights.
Um, when you uh, go to a shopping mall, there are certain things that you can and can't do. And it's much the same whether it's on a platform like an Amazon or it's on a platform like an Instagram or a um, uh, Facebook or whatnot. And that deciding on what is allowed or not, some of it is shaped by your your actual legal rights and some of it is shaped by the fact that the shopping center, this platform, it's a privately owned entity. And so there are certain things that they have decided that it's what their customers or vendors want. They're shaped by that. And we need, I believe they've got a um, changed interest in both what their customers are demanding, but also their public responsibility. And you can actually see the companies um, slowly coming to grips with that. There are certain things that are no longer allowed now that were allowed back in the day. Uh, and that is for the good. Um, and that is just, that's going to be the nature of the political discourse moving forward. Dr. Singer, thank you so much for joining us today. It was a pleasure talking to you and having you on the podcast. I really appreciate uh, you having me on uh, and just best wishes to everybody and stay well out there. Thank you very much for listening to this episode of the Hopkins Podcast on Foreign Affairs. We hope you enjoyed it. We would like to say thank you to the International Studies Program at Johns Hopkins University and the SNF Agora Institute at Johns Hopkins University for making this episode possible. Remember to follow us on social media at Hopkins POFA on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook for the latest and greatest of Hopkins POFA content. Hit follow on Spotify, subscribe on iTunes, and leave a rating. We'll see you next time.